Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together this evening at the middle of this week to open your word, O God, to study and be taught by your spirit, to meditate upon the promises that you have made, and to sing strong hymns that speak to you praise and speak those same promises back with confidence that you will fulfill them. We're thankful for your blessing upon us through the week that we have had thus far, for your providential care, for your protection of us, for your blessing upon our loved ones, O God, and those whom we lift up day by day because of various needs. We pray that you would continue to bless our sick, those who are dealing with pain and illness, those recovering from surgery, those preparing for it. We ask, O God, that you would bless each one according to your good and perfect will, that you would use weakness to show your strength to our brothers and sisters, and that you would be pleased to grant them healing such as would glorify you and encourage your saints and cause us to return thanks to you for that blessing. We ask your blessing upon our nation, God, that you would grant us repentance and true revival, and that we would not lose heart because of the wickedness that we see all around us, but would rather be all the more bold and cheerful, knowing that Christ will conquer all of his and our foes. We ask your blessing upon our children and upon our children's children, that you would grow them in grace and faith, God, that you would raise up godly spouses for our kids, that they would excel us in serving you, and that they would serve faithfully and well for many, many years to come. We ask your blessing upon this congregation, God, that you would use uh, our fellowship and the ministry of the Word and Spirit here as a light to this community and as a blessing even beyond this community to those in other places. We pray that you would fill us with love for you and love for one another, patience and wisdom, O God, that we would be steadfast and that you would strengthen our hands for the work that you call us to do. Bless us now as we open your word together. Teach us the things that we have not known. Open our eyes further that we might see more than we have perceived before. Uh, Correct the errors in our thinking, O Lord. Let every uh, mistake of man fall away, but your word to abide within our hearts. And then bless us as we return to our homes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so you had the handout for tonight, last week. Um, didn't really think that we would get to it, but because there was a possibility, I went ahead and, and put it out last week. So you've had for the last week this handout to reflect upon, and maybe some of you have done that. Others of you, you're looking at it for the first time tonight, and that is fine. Uh, over the last two weeks of our study, we took kind of a 50,000-foot overview of some of the Old Testament prophecies that point us toward an optimistic eschatology. Now, eschatology being the study of the end times, and optimistic, not just in the sense that Jesus is going to win in the end, which is what all Orthodox Christians believe, not just optimistic in the sense that God is going to save all of those whom He has chosen to save from the foundation of the world through election of grace in Jesus Christ. That's what all Calvinists believe. But optimistic in the sense of the future of this present world, the destiny of this present world prior to the return of Jesus is piety and not pluralism. That's what we're saying is that some way, somehow, we want to be very humble and not uh, suggest that we have all of the answers to to, to what that's going to look like, when it's going to come about, how exactly it's going to come about. But some way, somehow, you are going to see the gospel succeed 
in the Great Commission that Jesus gives to his church. The, the nations are going to be discipled. They're going to be taught to obey the Lord. The ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to Yahweh. They will worship the true God. And we expect that as we see more and more people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to see the outworking of that in the sanctification of human society and culture. That does not mean that we believe that everyone is going to be saved or that everyone who makes a profession of faith will be truly born again, born from above. It doesn't mean that what we want to see is an outward cultural sort of Christianity, kind of a churchianity. We're not saying we want to go back to the good old days, so to speak, of the 1950s and Mayberry, where everybody goes to church, but arguably not everyone is living as a Christian should. But what we are saying is that would that be so bad for our communities to be structurally Christian, convictionally Christian, even if not every person in the town is truly humble before God, when the king of Nineveh commands the entire city to repent and, and seek the blessing of Yahweh in dust and ashes, even if not everyone is doing so from the heart, can we say that that had a negative impact on the city? I don't think so. I, I want to live in a penitent town like that. And so we do believe that the gospel is going to save everyone whom God intends to save, and we think that those whom God intends to save are far more than a lot of conservative Christians have imagined, but we also believe that as they are saved, even those who are not saved are going to have some beneficial effects because the presence of the saints in the world is like salt and light and leaven, and that is a good thing. Now, what we're going to begin to do tonight, and it may take us two weeks as well, or we might make a really great time, I don't know, we'll see, uh, is we're going to start to do kind of the same 50,000-foot overview of some of the New Testament prophecies. And we're going to simply say that we, uh, we uh, recommend, and I say by we, I mean me, right? But Because I'm not assuming anything about your convictions, but, but we would recommend that you consider an optimistic es eschatology because it is the straightforward reading of many New Testament promises. And, and in saying that, we're going to have to acknowledge, just as we did the last two weeks, any number of these passages need more attention than we're going to give them at this point in our study. Some of these we're going to come back to later, and we're going to dig a little further. Some of them we've already mentioned in earlier installments and even given more time in earlier lessons than we will tonight. What we're trying to do is put the weight of evidence upon you and help you realize that there is a general tone, a general tenor, a general trajectory that Scripture is anticipating, any one of these passages you might be able to quibble with exegetically, and yet the overwhelming weight of evidence really does recommend more optimism about the salvation of the world and the sanctification of human society than many Christians have assumed. Now, there are some passages in the New Testament that people will often quote as defeaters to a post-millennial view, to this optimistic eschatology. And I'm not really going to deal with those tonight because we're going to have an entire lesson or maybe more than one week where we look at those defeaters. But I do want to suggest that even those passages that might be in your mind that you think stand opposed to an optimistic eschatology, the idea that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, or that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, you want to see those passages in the broader context of these New Testament promises. And I've tried to collect them under several headings that I hope will be helpful for us tonight. First of all, let me remind you of what we talked about in the second week of our study. It was really kind of the first main point that we made after our introduction, and that is that Jesus 
has come not merely to save the church, but to save the world. Let me remind you of some of these passages we talked about then. John chapter 1 and verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is not an Arminian, but he does believe that Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world. We talked a little bit about what that means. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It's not people who are in the world saved out of the world. It's the world itself being saved. And we realize that to, in part, to some extent, that mission is accomplished by Jesus judging the world, right? Taking the wicked out of the world, saving the world from the presence of evildoers. But notice that in John 3, 17, uh, there is a specific contrast between his work as judge and his work as savior. So we affirm his work as judge. We do believe that part of the salvation of the world will be in casting the ungodly into hell, but, that, but that's not primarily what's in view here because here John is saying he did not come to condemn the world, he came to save it. In his first advent, his coming is for the purpose of bringing salvation and the object or recipient of that salvation is the world itself. John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, again, you could say, well, world there, pastor, just means uh, all kinds of people in the world. I, I'm sure that, that that is included. I'm sure that the New Testament does teach that. In fact, I'm sure that the whole Bible teaches that. It's not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. It's not just for the rich. It's also for the poor. It's not just for men. It's also for women. And yet, these passages are saying more than just that, aren't they? There's enough passages here, and it's framed in different ways, in different contexts, from different angles, that more is being said than just that Jesus is going to save all kinds of people. He's going to save the world itself. In John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Do you believe that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus... Or maybe we would say even more specifically, in the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus, do you believe that the devil was dethroned? That he was cast out? That he was cast down from heaven as described in Revelation chapter 12, knowing now that his time is short. Knowing for the first time that his rebellion has failed and cannot succeed. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it may change the way that you read some of the passages in your New Testament that you think cut against a post-millennial point of view. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Well, that, that's true at a point in time. But has the ruler of this world been unseated? Has he been dethroned? Has he been cast down? Has that influence begun to wane as a result of the things that happened 2,000 years ago in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension? And I think the scriptures would say, yes, indeed. Now, as we go on, I want to point you to the fact that the kingdom of God is really the subject of the, the apostolic preaching. Uh, as American Christians living on the wrong side, of, well, it's not the wrong side, right? But, but, it's just, but it is this side of the Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening that was not so great, right? On this side of revivalism, we think of the gospel in terms of four spiritual laws, and those four spiritual laws are true. I'm, I'm not disputing the four spiritual laws. 
And I'm not denying that many people have come to Saving Faith through uh, tent meetings and evangelistic crusades and through various types of revivalism. Praise God for that. that God saves His people in all kinds of different ways. But what has happened is, on this side of those kinds of uh, sociological events, we have reduced the gospel largely to a message of individual salvation. That the gospel is is that Jesus died for my sins and when I believe in him, my sins are forgiven and I go to heaven when I die. And that's the good news and it doesn't go any farther than that. And the problem is not that it's affirming anything untrue. It's affirming things that are very true and very precious. But the gospel in the New Testament is so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It really is astonishing uh, to to take a, a great big declaration like the gospel and make it just about me and just about sinners. So let me just try to drop the weight of this. I, I preached a sermon on this a couple of years ago. Some of you, I'm sure you just lie awake at night and just remember every sermon that I've ever preached, right? And just rehearse it in your mind. So of course you all remember that sermon. No, nobody remembers that sermon, right? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. And that same phrase appears over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. It also appears in the Gospel of Mark. It is always the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. And that's because the word gospel in the ancient world and in the Greco-Roman world has a political connotation. Gospel is not just a Bible word. It's not just a church word. It is a political word that was associated with announcements by the empire about the emperor. And now Jesus is coming to preach the gospel. And what is the gospel about? It's, it's if, you, if you make your pledge, if you say your prayer, if you throw your pine cone in the fire, you can go to heaven when you die. That's not what the gospel is about. That may be one of the great benefits of putting your trust in Jesus, but the message of the gospel is about the kingdom of God, and that that message is authenticated and visibly depicted in the acts of power that Jesus is performing. These acts of deliverance, right? He's showing the salvation by undoing the work of the curse and of Satan. In Luke chapter 11, verse 16, others testing Jesus sought from him a sign from heaven, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. What is Jesus saying? There is a king. Jesus believes in two kingdoms, right? There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. It's not the same two kingdoms you always hear about, right? It's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. But these two kingdoms are not the yin and yang, like equal principles of dualism, uh, destined to battle it out until the second advent, until the final coming of Jesus. No, one of these kingdoms is being despoiled. One of these kingdoms is being defeated. One of these kingdoms is being plundered. Which one is it? So, so don't tell me what the, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Right. And, and there's been no change in that in the last 2,000 years. Is that what you're claiming? 
That this, this, is, this is what Jesus has accomplished, is that the world is just as much under the control of the devil right now as it ever was. And, and you, might, you might say, well, now, Pastor, have you noticed what's going on in our country? Yeah, absolutely. Have you noticed what's going on anywhere else? Have you compared the general state of even our country right now with the ancient context in which the apostles were preaching the gospel of the kingdom? One of these kingdoms is on the decline, and one of these kingdoms is on the ascendancy, and you can't just measure that by the nightly news. You can't just measure that in microcosms, right? You have to look at this generationally. You have to look at this across millennia. You have to look at this from the broader kind of cosmological perspective of the gospel proclamation and not just your own neighborhood. And Jesus says, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, by the power of God, Satan's kingdom is being undone. And that's what you're seeing. How important is the kingdom in Jesus' preaching? The word appears three times in John, 19 times in Mark, 45 times in Luke, and 55 times in Matthew. Jesus associates the kingdom with the good news over and over again. We think of the gospel as about salvation. The New Testament presents the gospel as being about God's rule, about Christ's reign. Again, Jesus is able to save because He is Lord. And so when Jesus comes into Galilee, He's talking about the time being fulfilled. What time? The time when sinners can be forgiven? No, that time's already been. We've had that time already since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. What's new about Jesus' ministry is not the announcement that people can be saved through faith. Do you realize that? That, That's been preached all, all through the Old Testament. That's the only way anybody's ever been saved, and they've been saved the whole time. Jesus is not saying the time is fulfilled, finally salvation has arrived. Oh, there's a sense in which this is a consummation because Jesus, now the Lamb of God, is being offered upon the altar as a sacrifice for sin. But God's been forgiven people's sins for millennia. And, And how? By grace, through faith, ultimately looking ahead to the work of Christ. What has changed? What has been fulfilled? The promises about the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the response? Repent and believe in the gospel. This continues through the rest of the New Testament. You can see it in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking to the disciples about for six weeks after his resurrection. And then he goes back to heaven. Forty days he spends on earth, and then he goes back to the Father's right hand, they wait ten days, and then there's Pentecost. And what does he talk to them about for those six weeks? The things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is why the apostles ask in Acts chapter 1, right before the ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And we read that and we think, what a bunch of morons. They still haven't gotten it. What has Jesus been talking to them about for 40 days? The kingdom. Now, do they understand exactly what that kingdom is going to be, exactly what it looks like, exactly how it relates to Old Testament? Maybe not. Maybe not. 
But I dare say after 40 days of conversation with Jesus about the kingdom of God, they might be better able to form a question than you or I are able to judge their question. You see, maybe we look at their question as foolishness because of our assumptions about the gospel. We say, what does the kingdom of God have to do with anything? This is about how sinners can get saved. They understood that what Jesus is doing is about the kingdom of God. Again, are they expecting something a little different than what actually happens? Perhaps so, perhaps. But this is post-resurrection, folks. Their confusion is primarily prior to the cross. It's after the resurrection that the Lord begins bringing understanding to them through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so their question, even if it's somewhat misguided, perhaps can't be as far off as we often assume. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, when they believed, that is the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. We're supposed to preach Jesus Christ crucified and that alone, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, what exactly does that mean? Because in Acts chapter 8, Philip's preaching Christ and him crucified. And what does that look like? Preaching the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. By the way, these are not the only references to kingdom in the book of Acts. This is a highly selective, just really quick hits to give you a sense across the, across the book. In chapter 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly enough, some people take this as one of those defeater passages to postmillennialism, and they say, well, see, if postmillennialism is not true, nobody's going to enter the kingdom through tribulations because everything is just going to be health and wealth and prosperity of all kinds, right? Well, well, no. I mean, people are still going to be wrestling with their flesh. They're still going to be wrestling with unbelief in the world. We're, We're going to see that even as we go through these passages in the New Testament. But what we're overlooking is the fact that it is through suffering that we enter the kingdom, that's, the, that's the, the direction we're going. We're looking at moving into the kingdom, not just into a private relationship with the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. This is Paul reasoning and persuading concerning what? The things of the kingdom of God. Why? Because Messiah is the anointed one. He is prophet, priest, and king. Who are the Jews waiting for? The son of David who will sit on David's throne. Any preaching about Jesus must be preaching about the kingdom. Otherwise, the gospel being preached is incomplete. It's incomplete. Now, you can be saved by an incomplete gospel. People do all the time. I mean, you might look back to when you first learned the gospel and you might say, I didn't even know anything about the kingdom of God until I'd been a Christian for years. That's okay. Like, if you're trusting in Jesus, like that's fine. There were a lot of areas of theology you had no idea about. You didn't understand the mechanics about your own salvation. You still may not. None of us may. But to preach Jesus is to preach the kingdom because every time you say Jesus is the Christ, you're saying He's the King. Every time you say Jesus is Lord, you're affirming that He's Lord of something. And as it turns out, He's Lord of everything. Acts chapter 20 and verse 25, Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. What's the primary message of Paul's ministry for three years in Ephesus. According to him, it's the kingdom of God. Chapter 28, when he gets to the city of Rome. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to which to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. 
Apparently all of those Old Testament passages that we looked at saying Yahweh is king, the ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to the Lord, the nations are going to flow to Jerusalem and ask to be taught the law of God, all of those are kingdom-centric in their orientation. The nations are acknowledging the one who is king of all kings and lord of all lords. And of course Paul continues for two years in the city of Rome preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. So if, you are, if you're in a place where you're hearing a lot about the gospel, but you're not hearing a lot about the kingdom, you're actually hearing kind of a, 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 an atrophied view of the gospel. It may be true in, in everything that it says, but it's not the whole truth if it's omitting the message about the kingdom. The kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. And when you think about the kingdom of God, there is a sense certainly in which the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God in this world. Of course, of course. But it does not mean that the church and the kingdom are coextensive and coterminous. What do we mean by that? The kingdom is larger than the church. Where do you see the kingdom of God? Well, you see it visibly in the community of people who say Jesus is Lord. And we acknowledge Him and we obey Him and we worship Him. You see the kingdom of God clearly there. But does that mean Jesus is Lord over the church and He's not Lord over the unbelievers at Walmart? Well, no, He's Lord everywhere. In heaven and on earth. Everywhere. And so the kingdom is is describing that reign of God. It's made visible in the church, certainly, and yet it extends over all creation. You can see this by analogy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth, right? So all of creation is under Him. And yet within creation you have Israel. And this is the covenant nation. This, these are the people, the nation that God has chosen to bring into special connection to Him. Not everybody in Israel actually is a follower of God, but all of them are in covenant with God. They are all, we would say, baptized members, right? They're all circumcised members of that covenant community. And then within Israel, what do you have? You have particular divisions of people who have a particular responsibility, uh, such as the Levites. You see these concentric circles. And in the same way, the kingdom of God extends over all of creation. The church is a visible manifestation of that. And within that church, you have those who have been truly circumcised in the heart. The kingdom has a global aspect. It's not just global in the sense that representatives from around the world are there. It means that Jesus is, in fact, the sovereign over everyone and everything. As Kuiper famously said, there is not one square inch over which Jesus does not claim possession and lordship. It is all mine, he says. And if Jesus is in authority everywhere, then the president is not. The Congress is not. The Supreme Court are not. The highest court of the land and the chief magistrates in every nation are only lesser magistrates. Do you understand that? So if the Supreme Court says, well, same-sex marriage is now a thing, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. I mean, like if the, if the president writes an executive order and he says, all, all squares now have three sides. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah, that's the proper response is you just laugh at him, right? We are now going to refer to all married men as bachelors, Or we are going to say that little boys who want to be little girls are actually women. 
Like the, 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 the lesser magistrates don't get to decide these things, right? They are acting as tin pot totalitarians, but there is a Lord who is above them. Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God had come was a declaration that the global reign of God has visibly begun. Now, you may say, well, but I don't see that reign fully, and it's been 2,000 years. God, God, should have, God should have gotten into all of the corners by now, right? Because, because you know exactly how God ought to do everything, right? You know, you, you, you've, got, you've got that figured out. This is what the kingdom of God ought to look like, and this is the timeline in which it should take place. Well, no doubt, God could do things any way he pleased to do within the limits of his character. But the fact is that the New Testament says the kingdom is beginning in Christ's resurrection and ascension. The outpouring of the Spirit is then the declaration that that kingdom is going to expand to the ends of the earth, and all of the kingdoms of this world are going to be shaken and ultimately come under judgment until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what we're saying is that the gospel is not less than a message of personal salvation, but it is certainly far more, far more. And you need to be oriented to expect that in the preaching of the gospel. Now, let's take our Bibles and turn to a couple of passages. I've I've given you just short uh, quotes from Scripture so far on your handout, but these we want to turn and actually look at in the text. In Matthew chapter 13... We have the parables of the kingdom, and of course we've got some parables in some other places as well, but there are going to be three parables in particular that we focus on for just a few minutes tonight. The parables of the kingdom are are how the gospel writers refer to these uh, illustrations, and by the way, don't make the mistake that so many Christians do of believing that Jesus used parables in order to make the message clearer, easier to understand, to kind of stoop down and help people get the message in ways they would not otherwise do. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 10, the disciples come and ask Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given talking about the crowd. Verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes from Isaiah and says, this is exactly what was prophesied. God would hide the truth from the people, and only those who wanted to know it would come and ask. Verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We've taught about this in more detail in our series on the Gospel of Mark. You can go look up Mark chapter 4. I don't want to repeat all of that material, but simply to say the parables are a sifting device. They are not meant to make the subject easier to understand, the point easier to grasp. They are to do the opposite. They are to hide it from the crowd. Jesus deals primarily with three different groups of people in in the Gospels. He deals with the crowd, which is a general category of people who come to hear him. He deals with the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief leaders of the people who are almost always hostile to him. And then he deals with the disciples. And what's the difference between a disciple and the average member of the crowd? The disciple is the one who comes and says, I don't get it. What are you talking about? We came out into the wilderness to hear a sermon. Instead, we got a story about a farmer and his seed. I'm sure there's a point, but I cannot understand what it is, and Jesus says, blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears. The the mystery is given to you because you you know that 
that you don't understand it, right? You, 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 you know that you're not wise. You know that you're not intelligent. Now, there were a lot of other people in the crowd, no doubt, who went away scoffing, right, like the Pharisees. Or who went away pretending to understand and say, boy, wasn't that, wasn't that so wise? Not all of you may have gotten it, but uh, I, I'm picking up what you're laying down there, Jesus. And they go home just as dumb as a sack of rocks, right? <laughs> Dumber than they were when they arrived. And then there are other people probably who are going home scratching their heads and they're saying, I, I don't know what this is about, but, but it doesn't make any sense to me. And they don't go and ask. And it's the disciples who come and say, Jesus, we, we know there's got to be a point, but this doesn't make any sense to us. And Jesus says, That's the point, is that the parables are a sifting mechanism. Now, here's the fun thing about the parables. Once Jesus brings you to the inside, once he begins explaining the way that the parables work, suddenly the parables all make the point easier to grasp. Isn't isn't that interesting? See, you think, most Christians think, the parables make the point easier to understand because you've grown up hearing the parables. And you've not only heard them, you've heard them explained. But if you came to a church service and you heard the parable of the sower for the first time without any other biblical context and you did not hear it interpreted and applied, you would, you would think it was a terrible sermon. You'd say, like, like this preacher's not even preaching the gospel. He's just telling us stories about farmers and their field, right? And so when the disciples are initiated into the meaning of the kingdom and the meaning of these parables, well, now suddenly Jesus doesn't have to explain every parable anymore. Parable of the sower? Yes. Parable of the wheat and the tares? Yes. But once you understand the parable of the wheat and the tares, you don't have to have the parable of the dragnet explained. Because the parable of the dragnet kind of makes sense. Once you understand the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the growing seed in Mark chapter 4, it's unique to the gospel of Mark, uh, you don't really have to have that explained because you see it. You get it. You're, You're understanding now how this works. Well, let's look at these three parables. First of all, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. It says, Another parable Jesus put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, no explanation for this. And interestingly, this is one of the parables that skeptics, biblical skeptics and critics of the Bible, will pick up on and say, The mustard seed is not the least or the smallest of all seeds on earth. Thank you. It's the smallest of the seeds that were used by the Jews in agriculture. That's Jesus' point. They're not not planting dandelion seeds. The the mustard seed is the smallest seed that they used in agriculture. And it's really small. I mean, like most of you probably have seen this, right? It's like the head of a pin. It's a really small seed. And then it grows into like a a huge bush, like a small tree, like a significant plant that a bird could actually nest in or an animal could hide underneath. What is being illustrated here? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a ridiculously small seed that grows into something very significant. That's not hard to understand, is it? Now, what does that parable presuppose? It presupposes that the kingdom is going to go from small to large. That the kingdom is going to go from insignificant to useful. That the kingdom is going to move from point A to point B gradually. This is going to be important in future lessons. I'm going to mention it a couple of times tonight. All of the pictures of the kingdom in the New Testament, and we could really say the same about most of the prophecies that we looked at last two weeks in the Old Testament, 
But all these promises in the New Testament are presupposing gradual growth. And by gradual, we mean slow. I mean, have you ever planted a garden with seed? Not seedlings, seeds. It seems like it takes forever for you to begin to see anything. It happens really slowly. And you're going out every day and you're waiting and your kids are going out and saying, why isn't it? Maybe we need to dig them up. Something is wrong and it's like we planted it three days ago. You shouldn't be expecting anything at this point. And that's, and that's the way that the kingdom grows according to Jesus. Now, the next parable is the very next one in verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till there was a little pocket of leavened bread surrounded by raw dough. Is that what your Bible says? It's not what your Bible says. She took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. You put yeast into the dough, and what happens? The whole lump of dough becomes leavened. It doesn't just affect one part. It doesn't leave the remainder surrounding it unaffected. You don't have, you know, the the spiritual kingdom of yeast and the common kingdom of raw dough. That's not what you're seeing. You don't have the kingdom of Jesus standing alongside of the kingdom of the wicked one, and they just kind of stay in their own lanes. What you see is that the kingdom represented by the yeast overtakes the entire lump. How does it happen? It happens gradually, right? Now, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't seem like gradual to us because we're like, it happens overnight. It happens over a period of a few hours, right? My, my wife puts together the bread mix and then she covers it up and puts it in a warming drawer and a few hours later, boom, it's, it's all leavened, right? That, that's how we want the kingdom of God to work. But you've got multiple pictures of this and you realize that the point is gradual but inevitable. That what starts small is going to have an influence that's going to permeate the whole. Again, Kuiper is exactly right. Jesus is not looking around at the nations and saying, there are several of these square inches that are mine. And then there are square feet and square yards that don't belong to me at all and will be altogether unaffected. They won't have anything to do with my kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the the leaven is going to go in and it is going to reach the outermost limits of that lump of dough. One day, the whole lump is going to be leavened. And no, it doesn't mean every single person saved But it means a lot more than a whole lot of Christians have imagined. Now, there's a third parable that I want to look at, and this is one of the parables that is used as supposedly a defeater to the postmillennial view, but I actually think is an argument in favor of postmillennialism, so I want to put it in front of you tonight. It's just a little bit earlier in the chapter, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24, the parable of the wheat and the tares. In verse 24, another parable Jesus put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Now, you already have enough understanding of the framework of an optimistic eschatology, I think, to understand why I would say that parable is an argument in favor of optimism rather than pessimism. But let's just turn the page and notice that Jesus explains this one, and let's see how that explanation works. It's in verse 36 that he begins to explain the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is the field? The field is the world. From where... Do the angels take out the sons of the evil one? They take them out of God's kingdom. Did you notice that? Verse 38, the field is the world. And then verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. I thought the field was the world. They gather the sons of the wicked one out of the world, right? What's another word for the world in this parable? The kingdom. The kingdom. And what I would point out is that this is the parable of tares in a wheat field. It's not a parable of wheat in a tare field. Right? It's, this is not the field of the evil one who has sowed tares, and then the Son of Man sneaks in and sows some wheat among the tares. It's just the opposite. The tares are the ones that don't belong. The tares are in the minority here. This is not a picture of two kingdoms that are standing side by side and equal in power and influence. No. Are there two kingdoms? Yes. Yes. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the God of this world, so to speak. But one of these kingdoms is in the ascendance and one is in decline. And the field representing the world becomes the kingdom of God. And are there tares in it? Yes. Are there tares at the end? Yes. And if you think, well, that's not consistent with postmillennialism, I would say, what kind of postmillennialism are you you talking about? All the postmillennialists I know, they believe that there will be unsaved people at the end. Sure, there's not, not every single person is going to be born from above. There's going to be a final persecution. There are going to be people that stand before the Lord in that last generation and are lost. But they are in a field that has become the kingdom of God. They are tares in a wheat field. It is not wheat out of a tear field. You see how that imagery reinforces optimism rather than pessimism, and specifically optimism about this present world. Ken Gentry, in his book, He Shall Have Dominion, said this about this parable, quote, The point of the parable of the tares is not to reiterate what the mustard seed and leaven parables teach. Rather, it teaches that despite the enormous worldwide success of the gospel, we will always have a mixture of the unrighteous and the righteous. 
Gospel success will never totally root out either sin or sinners in history, not even during the kingdom's highest development in the future. The parable's point is that tares will be found among the predominant wheat. The tares are the intruders, not the wheat. The Son of Man returns to a wheat field, not a tare field. The tares must be left alone for the sake of the wheat. Does that make sense? Well, I think Gentry's point is exactly right. Yeah, unless lest you get carried away with your optimism, there's some. It's sobering a little bit to say, "Hey, there's still going to be some that are not serving God. They may be formally professing faith like the Pharisees, but uh, but not submitted in their hearts. They may be professing unbelievers. Yeah, you you are still going to have the challenge of unbelief." in the greatest moments of the kingdom of God. And yet, and yet, look at what's happening. The world has become the kingdom. And the sons of evil are now the remnant that must be rooted out. So if your paradigm for Christianity is perpetual exile, there's a problem. Is is the church kind of compared to exiles living in a strange land? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the first century, yeah, at the beginning of this project, what's happening? The leaven is permeating. The mustard seed is growing. The rock cut out without hands is growing into a mountain that is growing to fill the whole world. And the field is becoming the kingdom of God. Let me try and cover at least, at least I think we get the next two. Let's, let's see if we can, right? In Matthew chapter 16 you have a promise that's very familiar to you. I won't read the entire passage. There, Jesus, he's coming into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He's asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they have these different answers. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist. Uh, And he says, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew's gospel, Peter gives the full-throated confession, right? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, I say to you, verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or, or hell, there's, a, there's an interpretive question here. You, could, you can make a very clear exegetical case that Jesus is referring here to hell, but the word actually is Hades, and so some, some might dispute that, so I'm just trying to be transparent about that. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, if it's the gates of Hades or hell that are being questioned. Are they going to prevail or not? Who is the aggressor? It's not the gates of Helm's Deep. It's the Black Gate of Mordor. Which gate is going to prevail? It's not the gates of the righteous, the gates of the church, the gates of the kingdom of God that are being assailed. It's the gates of the enemy. It's the gate of death, the gate of of condemnation, the gate of the evil one that is being assaulted. So in the Battle of Helm's Deep, you've got the orcs and the Urukai coming and attacking right the stronghold, Helm's Deep, where the righteous are huddled. But Jesus is portraying the last battle at the Black Gate where the forces of righteousness are assaulting the gates behind which Sauron hides. And Jesus says the gates of the enemy will not prevail. They will not withstand the assault. They will not succeed. They will not remain intact. And that goes back to what we saw, I think it was two weeks ago, because it was early in the Old Testament, 
In Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah, what does the Lord promise? He says, your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. And what do you see through the rest of the Old Testament? God's people taking the enemy's gates and carrying them away. Sometimes very vividly, think Samson. Right? In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, John says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is, what's the plan? The plan is for the kingdom of God to overcome the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the wicked one. The gates of Hades will fall. And how will they fall? How will the kingdom of darkness ultimately be overthrown? It's through faith. It's not through politics. It's not through Supreme Court decisions. It's not through legislatures. All, all of the, We want to see obedience to Jesus in all of those realms. I'm not suggesting that that is in some way an area of neutrality or an area where we, you know, we can have kind of this secular uh, zone. Nope. Nope, Jesus is Lord everywhere. We want to see obedience to Jesus on the Supreme Court, in the halls of Congress, in the White House, and in every capital, in every nation of the world. But, but, the, but the world is not overcome through those political centers of power, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. The point about the Great Commission we've made many times, and let me simply remind you of it here. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus begins his Great Commission by asserting his authority everywhere. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations. Not from the nations. Not out of the nations. But make the nations themselves followers of Jesus. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What should be done in the United States of America, in Russia, in Ukraine, in North Korea, in Uganda, that the nation should be taught to obey Jesus Christ? They should be taught to obey Jesus Christ. How are they going to come to that conviction? Through the preaching of the gospel and the baptizing of people. We're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them Jesus is Lord. You need to obey Him. And so that's the garbage collector. That's the carpenter. That's the banker. That's the president. That's the policeman. You need to obey Jesus in your particular vocation. The nations are the objects that are to be discipled. And what impact will that have when the nations are discipled? Well, when you begin to see the majority of a nation coming to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will begin to see things like what you saw recently in Uganda, which was the uh, strengthening of already existing laws against sodomy up to and including criminal penalties of imprisonment and in aggravated cases, death. And if you read the law, you should find that entirely unobjectionable. Entirely unobjectionable. Because the instances of violation that would warrant the death penalty are in incredibly egregious, predatory, and also rare. Like you could argue the law is more restrained than it has to be. And yet we have professing Christians 
in the halls of power, including Senator Ted Cruz, who call that law egregious and then put hashtag LGBTQ on his tweet. So, so you need to understand that, that what's happening in that nation is they are, they are passing a law that said, by the way, up until the mid-20th century, all of the states had laws against sodomy. Right? So it's not as if this is some, you know, backward barbarian cave. What kind of, you know, caveman morality is this? Is the morality that you had until 15 minutes ago. Right? Whether that law was ever enforced or not, the fact it was on the books was meaningful. Because people recognized this is aberrant behavior. This is unbiblical. This is immoral. It's not appropriate. And now... Very rapidly, we have American politicians, political leaders who say, I am a Christian and I believe that the outlawing of sodomy is abhorrent. Well, you need to realize that as nations are brought into the obedience of Jesus, you are going to see that reflected in their laws. And right now, Uganda's laws in that area better reflect obedience to Jesus than the United States where you live. I said two more, and I know it's time, but I am going to do one more. Sorry. Bear with me. We've got a lot to cover next week, so try and sneak a little bit more in. The gospel will go to and be believed in the uttermost parts of the earth. A couple of passages here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Jesus says to the apostles, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 13, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded commanded us, excuse me, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And then Acts 28, 28, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Now, if you have commentaries on the book of Acts, especially scholarly commentaries on the book of Acts, they will probably explain to you that the end of the earth or the ends of the earth or the uttermost parts of the earth is a technical term for Rome and the boundaries of the Roman Empire. And there is some truth to that, by the way. Like some, Sometimes when the, when the New Testament is talking about um, go to all the world, it's actually referring, it, it's using a Greek uh, noun that refers to the Roman Empire, Right? And so what are we supposed to take from these passages then? Are we supposed to take that the entire Roman Empire would be evangelized and Africa wouldn't be? All of the Roman Empire would be evangelized, but that northern part of Siberia that Rome never controlled, that that wouldn't be. The, The Romans would be evangelized, but the barbarians would not. Is is that the point? Well, no, I think you understand the point. The point is that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached everywhere. As far as human civilization extends, the message of salvation is going to extend. And and Paul says it explicitly in Acts 13. They will hear that message. Acts 28. They will hear it. It's a message of salvation and they will hear it. Now, you can read these passages from an amillennial standpoint. Again, I'm not denying that you can. But it would essentially mean that the gospel will be carried to the ends of the earth. Some will believe it, but most will reject it. 
And my question over the last two weeks and tonight and next week is, is that the most straightforward reading of these passages? Is it possible? Sure. Is it the most straightforward reading? I don't think so. I think the most straightforward reading is that the gospel of salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts, and the nations there will hear and believe it. Okay, that's our study tonight.